I don't know if you've seen this guy, Hamid Karzai, the president of Afghanistan, on TV or heard him on the radio, but that is one charming man. A year ago this week, in January 2002, not long after the Taliban were driven from power in Afghanistan, he came to the United States, probably going to be on hand for the State of the Union address last year. And while he was here, he spoke with an audience that was mostly African-Americans at Georgetown University. And he said to them, in Pashto and then in English, come back, come back to Afghanistan. He directed this especially to the young people. Work hard, learn well, study well, and make money. Bring it to Afghanistan. He grinned at the audience, then read from this card that had been handed to him with a question on it. Okay, specifically, how would you suggest the younger generation of Afghans living in the U.S.? Okay, specifically, there are areas in which you have studied. Those of you who have gone through university and have acquired degrees in in various fields, medicine, engineering, computers, uh, management, uh, banking, uh, business administration, all that, these are the areas, statistics, by the way. We need that very much, accounting, auditing. So do come. In addition to that, if somebody wants to be the president, she or he is also welcome. So all of you are welcome. Afghanistan had been at war for 23 years. There were the Soviets, then the 10-year fight to expel them, then the war between the Afghans, then the Taliban took over. As a result, an entire generation of Afghans has grown up in the United States, teenagers today who are much more American than they are Afghan. Many of them have never seen their country. And it's possible that the very first teenager to take Hamid Karzai's invitation to heart and return to Afghanistan was a 17-year-old from Northern California named Haider Akbar. And, as luck would have it, before he went, he met a radio producer named Susan Burton, and she urged him to take a tape recorder along on the trip. Well, today we feel lucky to bring you the recordings that he made. As you'll hear, Haider's father had moved back to Afghanistan months before Haider went to work for Hamid Karzai in the new government of the country. And because of his father's position, which was pretty high up in the government, Haider gets an insider's look at everything going on in the country. It is a very unusual glimpse at a country that most of us still do not really have much sense of. Of course, this is um, This American Life from WBEZ Chicago, distributed by Public Radio International. I'm Ira Glass. For most of our show today, you're going to be hearing the recordings that Haider made himself. But... To give you a sense of who Haider was before he went on his trip to Afghanistan, Susan Burton begins Haider's story before the trip at his home in Concord, California. When Haider goes to Barnes & Noble, the first thing he does with any new book they have in about Afghanistan is turn to the index and look up Kabul radio. It's pretty much always in there, because on the night in 1979 when the Soviets took Kabul, they stormed two places. One was the palace, and the other was Kabul radio. Kabul radio was headed by Haider's dad. During the years of the resistance, Haider's dad had two close friends. One was Hamid Karzai, now the president of Afghanistan, and the other was a legendary commander named Abdul Haq. After he looks up Kabul radio, the next thing Haider looks up in any book is always Abdul Haq. In his favorite book, Soldiers of God, by Robert D. Kaplan, there's an entire chapter, Chapter 5, completely and totally devoted to Abdul Haq. One time Haider told his mother what Kaplan said about Abdul Haq's headquarters in Peshawar. 
And and then he describes how he went into his office. And oh, he was always busy, and he had one hand on the phone and the other one looking at some maps. And you always felt like you were wasting time when you were out. And my mom was like, wait, he wasn't that busy. <laughs> he was at our house every single day. <laughs> Hyder's dad worked with the resistance. For years, Hyder didn't see his dad and didn't know his hero, Abdul Haq. When Abdul Haq suddenly showed up at the family's house in California a couple weeks before September 11th, Hyder was speechless. That day, Abdul Haq told Hyder's dad that he was scheming to topple the Taliban. Not long after September 11th, he got in touch again. He was going in, he was ready. Days after Abdul Haq snuck into Afghanistan, Haider came home from school and found his mother crying in her bedroom. Abdul Haq had been captured and killed by the Taliban, shot with dozens of bullets, then hung from a tree. Haider wrote about the execution in his current events journal at school the next day, and the teacher wrote a check mark and then, in red ballpoint pen, sorry. Just weeks after Abdul Haq's death, the Taliban were defeated by the American forces. The next month, Haider's dad had a long talk with his old friend Hamid Karzai, sold his business, and left for Afghanistan. Okay, this is my room. Um, to the right is the TV, and I have a couple video games and stuff like that. When I first meet Haider, he shows me around his house. We sit down in the living room and look at family photos, like a snapshot of Hamid Karzai at Disneyland maybe 20 years ago. Baby-faced, standing next to Goofy. Well, this is an issue September 1968. It's a National Geographic issue. Hyder opens like the old the, magazine, which yeah, he bid for off of eBay, and shows me a favorite picture of nice. Afghanistan. Actually, I really, really, really like this picture. This is more of the countryside of Afghanistan, and it's a green, green grass and trees, and then there's, like, blue, blue water flowing through. Yeah, um, shepherd here and his... Uh, I think there's a cows, but I'm not sure. That house looks pretty neat, too. In the middle of the river, there's a rock, and there's a house built on top of it. I don't know how he gets back to the, the land, but I think he probably goes through these rocks or something. We look at the picture for so long that it starts to seem to me almost like a fairy tale picture you can enter inside. Like when the movie camera goes in for a close-up on a color plate in a storybook, and then all of a sudden the wagons are rolling, and the animals' tails are swishing in Dolby stereo and the action is actually happening right there. Before Hyder's dad left for Afghanistan, he owned a hip-hop clothes store in Oakland. A few months ago, he was selling FUBU pants to teenagers. Now, he spends his days with the people running Afghanistan. Hyder shows me a picture taken just a couple weeks before of his dad sitting near Karzai at a medieval-looking dining table in the palace in Kabul at a meeting about peacekeeping troops. When I see this, I'm really, really happy for him because it's kind of like his dream. I could tell how bored and how frustrated he was living here and having to just be at the store and just live everyday life. I remember for like a couple of years, my mom was telling him, like, you, you don't even like interact with people. Like, I think, I don't know, but I think it's pretty much because your dad lost hope. It was weird. I mean, a lot of people have been affected by September 11th, but, like, our family's literally, like, turned upside down. Like, even me, like, my whole plans on my life has changed. 
Before September 11th, Hyder thought he'd study business, maybe become a mortgage broker, like his older brother. But after, Hyder felt like he'd found his mission in life. He would do something big to help Afghanistan rebuild, like become a politician or an engineer. The one problem was, all of his dreams took place in a country to which he'd never been. So he convinced his dad to let him join up with him in Afghanistan for the summer. Like, I read a lot about it, and I learn a lot about it, and I know a lot about it, but I've never visited it. So, like, that's another reason I really want to go to because it's easy to talk, but then to actually do it is it's much harder, you know. That's what my father was telling me, too. He's like, right now it's easy to talk about going back, but, like, once you have to, like, take the glass of water, cold water, and, like, put it over in your head, and that's how you take the shower, and on mountains, and you have, like, a biscuit in your hand, it's not as easy. <laughs> was that when your dad said that to you? Was that kind of sobering? No, it actually kind of made me more hard-headed and more, even want to go back even more, you know, like just to prove it and just to, just to get the doubts out of my head. I, it's almost like a test, you know. I want to pass it. It's, it's almost like a test on how much I can take. Okay, on the test, or quiz, I should say. There are a lot of Afghan kids at Hyder's High School but he tries not to talk too much about his trip with them, or with anyone. The whole thing means so much to him that it's difficult to explain. On the day I visit his English class, the teacher shows the movie version of Frankenstein. And after, everyone's supposed to list five differences from the book. But instead, everyone's just talking, and a girl eating saltines one by one out of a package on her desk asks Hyder how come he's going, and if he's ever coming back. How come you're going back? Yeah, I'm coming back, but I don't know, it's a pretty long answer, so I really can't summarize it in. Hyder's friend Alec jumps in. He's really deep with his roots, let's just say that. He's going to get his education here and then move back to Afghanistan and help rebuild it. Really? Wow, that's cool. That's a pretty good summary. <laughs> I'm his manager. <laughs> 10%. Alec is not Afghan, but everyone calls him Afghan because he can recite his cell phone number in Dari. A lot of these kids saw a picture Hyder's father sent of Hamid Karzai sitting at his desk in the palace, holding a satellite phone. And today they joke with Hyder about the various devices he might use to keep in touch with them over the summer. Bro, you should get a two-way from, a, from here I'm to Afghanistan. I'm telling you, bring a laptop. What's wireless name? internet. Yeah. They're like, hey, Hyder, how's Afghanistan? <laughs> I met the greatest girl. <laughs> I haven't seen his face yet. I haven't seen her face yet, the boy says. Hyder loves his friends, but says it's weird because they're interested in all the regular stuff. Girls, cars, different kinds of sneakers. Where Hyder wishes that he could zoom ahead to being a grown-up and moving back to Afghanistan. That's another thing. Unlike most of his friends and cousins, he doesn't feel American. I do feel like somewhat of an outsider here. It's really weird. I've never been in my own country. Um... I think that's one of the reasons I really want to go now, just to see it. And I almost feel, I have like a, almost like an insecurity. There's so much more that could have happened to me, you know. If I wasn't so fortunate, I could have easily been growing up there right now. And growing up in a generation of, like, literally that doesn't know anything but war. I think anything could happen to me, and I would still almost always not try to complain about it because of what Afghans have been through, especially in Afghanistan. Hyder's been toughening up for this trip. Before leaving for Afghanistan, his dad made a deal with him. If he wanted him to buy him a ticket, he had to lose weight. Hyder started running on a treadmill in his garage, wearing a sweatshirt, plus another shirt, plus a garbage bag, to help him sweat more. In two months, he's lost 65 pounds. 
and there's another detail to take care of. The other day, my mom told me to make sure you get your shots before going to Afghanistan. And I actually don't want to take them because, I don't know, it kind of adds on more to the foreigner and American going to Afghanistan. And it might seem like silly or like childish or like too much testosterone or whatever, but I just don't want to go in and get shots to make sure I don't get sick or malaria or anything because my father never had to. And I kind of like, it's my own country. I'm just going to go in there. I, I don't want them, I mean, to think of me as a foreigner. Haider's trip is just six weeks away. He's hoping that instead of flying straight to Kabul, he can arrange to travel over the Khyber Pass. That's the right way to do it, he says. That's the way everyone's done it. The Mongols, the British conquerors, the Mujahideen. He's planning what to pack, traditional Afghan clothes, his books about Afghanistan, and batteries so that he can listen to his U2 CDs. He picks up the remote control for his stereo. You know that song on YouTube? That's a pretty famous YouTube song. The one that's sitting on top of the roof where the streets have no name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. yeah. Um, it's hard to explain it. Let me just go. I think it's in C play right now, so one sec. Yeah, and it's kind of like when I picture a place, you know, where the streets have no name. It's like I picture something like Afghanistan, you know. And it's, I think it's a song. It's pretty much tired about how set and pretty much systematic the world is, you know. Like, yeah, I was like, I want to run, I want to hide, I want to tear down the walls that hold me inside. So it's kind of like at the point where I am right now, it's just I feel really held down. Before I leave, I show Hyder how to work the tape recorder he'll be taking to Afghanistan. Hello, hello. Um, it's 8.40 in the morning, Monday, May 27th, and uh, I'm leaving today. This is my last day here. Um, I was listening to the radio the other day and they had a funny commercial. They were promoting some contests to go to a trip anywhere. And I was naming all these countries in Italy, France, and then they're like, Afghanistan. And then they started, they made like this funny music. And they're like, okay, well, maybe not Afghanistan. <laughs> I don't know, it just hit me as weird since I'm going there today. I'm going today. Um, I just got done speaking to my dad about 15 minutes ago and we confirmed that. Somebody's going to come and pick me up in Peshawar. Um, I'll probably spend the night at my relative's house over there. And from there, I'm going to drive to Kabul, which is like a six-hour drive from Peshawar. Um, and he told me to <laughs> shave my goatee. So I'll go ahead and shave that. Um, that's about it. I'm just really, really excited. I just feel like going, ah. I'm just really, 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 really excited. Signing off from San Francisco. Next recording you'll hear will probably be from Peshawar. Goodbye. Hello, hello. Um, I'm actually on my way to 
Turham right now, the border station between Afghanistan and Pakistan. Um, I arrived at, my, at the house in Peshawar. Um, I know I had arrived when I saw, when I saw an AK-47 in the living room, just lying up against the cabinet, fully loaded, <laughs> ready to go. I got stopped by the police and got checked and everything because they saw the microphone. But I turned it on really quick. We're at the Hyber Pass right now. And it's pretty incredible. There's a, two mountains on right between the mountain ridges and uh, I don't want to attract unwanted attention but I am passing through the Khyber Pass right now. This is the Khyber Pass. So I was going through the Khyber Pass and uh, we reached Torham finally and I didn't really have that sense of wow this is my country you know I'm flying in Afghanistan and none of that you know kiss the ground stuff. You know, I just saw a lot of, you know, poor kids running around, a lot of burkas, beards. Felt like a total outsider. They kept on telling me, the road to Kabul, it's horrible, it's really bad, it's really bad, it's really been destroyed. So I was thinking, fine, a bad road. Probably potholes here and there a lot, probably have to slow down, go around them, etc. No. <laughs> I mean, he said roads, which is the key word there. So I was thinking there would be a road there. What he should have said is from Jalalabad to Kabul, there's no road. My, I think my head probably hit the top of the car about like 30 times through the whole ride. And then towards the end of the trip, I was starting to get motion sickness and I would feel like I was going to throw up and I was getting really sick and dizzy. This whole place was so barren and so... tell you the truth, I kind of had regretted what I had done. I was like, wow, you know, maybe, maybe I wasn't ready for this. I'm at the doorway at Kabul Hotel right now. We're actually invited somewhere for lunch. We're going to go there right now. Salama. That's my dad. <laughs> All right. The hotel, Kabul Hotel. Let me describe the hotel to you. Me and my dad, we're in the same room. It's a pretty small room. There's two beds, a little like area where you can sit. Balcony where like probably like three people could stand. Um, there's actually a huge, you know, like some this place where a missile had hit Kabul Hotel, and it's still like that. You know, there's like this huge hole, all like four stories, like on one side. And this is this is one of the, this is probably one of the nicest hotels here. Hello, hello. I think it's my fourth day in Kabul. Anyways, I was just coming out of the bathroom after cleaning myself for the evening prayers, and I just heard a couple rockets outside. I ran to the balcony real quick just to see what was going on, and everybody, except for like a few people who jumped up and try and see where it was coming from. The rest of the city was functioning pretty normal. Uh, it was pretty, pretty weird. Uh, let me ask my dad if he saw that too, that the whole city was pretty normal. My dad, I think, is listening to the news. Dada? Mm -hmm. 
Dile că și-a dat ei rachetul. Yeah, my dad said the same thing. He said everybody's just going about their own business. That's basically what he just said in Pashto. They've seen plenty of rockets here in Kabul. Um, I'm gonna go do my evening prayers and go downstairs. Today was a really interesting day. I went to the palace today and it was just incredible. Like the, it's almost like going through a movie like this old. The gates and how they open is the huge locks. <laughs> almost look like you're visiting someplace in Disneyland or Universal Studios. But yeah, it was the real thing. All of a sudden, Karzak comes out, sees my dad, and he says hello. And then my dad introduces me to him. He's like, this is my son. <laughs> I got kind of nervous, actually, you know, it's hard not to be, you know, meeting him. You know, that queasy feeling in your stomach felt my, you know, like, heart rate go up. And he, he walks so fast, he's so busy right now, especially since there's like four days to the Loy Jirga. He, he doesn't even walk, he practically runs. After that, somebody else was just entering this the, the palace, and it was um, Rashid Dostam, probably the most infamous warlord. <laughs> He's uh, pretty out there, even by Afghan standards. I've heard stories about this guy rolling over people with tanks, strapping people down to tanks and, like, crushing them. <laughs> so it's weird to shake hands with that kind of a fella. This is really interesting, just being in the palace at a time like this, you know. Like, this is <laughs> the future of the country right here. You have, like, infamous warlords walking this way and, like, famous ministers walking that way. It's pretty, pretty exciting. I mean, it's like the equivalent, I think, of like the Lollapalooza or something. Going backstage and getting to meet all these like rock stars going back and forth. It was kind of like that. <laughs> and it's a uh, nerdy and dorky as that sounds. That's pretty much how it was like for me. So my dad has been appointed the governor of Kunar, but um, he really can't go there yet. There's still some resistance. In the morning, there's usually a lot of people from Kunar that come over to see my dad. Um, 5.30 in the morning, completely dark outside. 30 people from Kunar already lined up at the door. One time when they left, my dad actually sat down and he actually told me almost everything that's been going on. And there's a lot going on. I mean, there's so many. Politics is really dirty. That's all I can say. There's so much going on. There's so much against my dad, so much for my dad, so much up to my dad. It's a really big deal, you know. Trust me with all that. He warned me too, like in this documentary or, you know, when I'm talking to other people, not to say anything. <sighs> I can't even tell my mom on the phone about it because we know how the phones are listened. And when he said that to me, really, really, you know, made me feel like his son, you know. I'm always there, right by his side, and like all these tribal elders he meets, all these people he talks to, he like the most intimate stuff, and I'm standing with him every second, you know, like this major commander of the Americans or everything. And it's really amazing, I mean, how much he trusts me with everything. I gotta be careful and not ruin it. Traveling to Pahman right now. God, this road is horrible. Pahman was a really interesting place. Um, it was a, sort of this vacation place for Afghans. Living in Kabul, when it got a little hot, 
There was actually a lot of people there. A lot of people there. It was really packed. It's almost of a sign of things getting back to normal again. It's like people being able to visit Bahman again. Because ever since the jihad and the resistance was a key area of fighting. And it was really interesting to see all those people coming back after so many years. The Taliban had banned music for six years and I think it's only been like five or six months since music has come back, so it's all still really new. And then at this one point, there's actually these men started dancing. And all these people gathered around and they're watching and clapping and then all of a sudden some chump with a Kalashnikov came over and, and they stopped the drums and they stopped the dancing. I was like, what are you doing, and blah, 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 non-Islamic, etc. It wasn't even, you know, like girls and boys dancing or anything like that. That would be unthinkable. It was just a guy dancing. And then later on, it was really, all of a sudden I see like this huge mob running. And uh, a sick was in front and they were like dragging him forward with the Kalashnikov. And sick, you know, sick are. They're the ones with the turbans and the beard. My dad was like, what's going on? And they're like, oh, we caught him drinking alcohol. And uh, I don't know what they were going to do to him. But whatever it was, it kind of put a damper on the whole thing. I am in my hotel room. It's around 9.30 a.m. And uh, my uncle came in. He's about to die for his beard. He's laughing right now. He he knows a little bit of English and he figured out I was talking about him. He has this, you know, coloring device in his hand. It's prime cream hair color with conditioner, 45 black. And there's this lady with like wavy hair and smiley face. A couple of white hairs growing, so he's gonna get young again. <laughs> And it's really funny because he's just like this big, like macho commander. He's probably the biggest commander in the Kunar province area, which was major fighting area. He's lost an eye, you know, always walking around with an AK. <laughs> he went to the bathroom to go and color his beard. Yesterday he was showing me all these parts in his body that metal just left, you know. His arm, he's like, touch this, touch this, and I was touching it, and there's metal there, and there's metal in his head, and forehead, and like, upper arm, and elbow, just, you know, shrapnel, and bullet wounds, etc. <laughs> he's, he came out right now, he's closing the lid or something, I think he's working on it. Rangdikla? Oh? <laughs> he colored his beard. Testing. One, two, three. Testing. I'm sitting in my hotel room outside on the balcony. It's about nine o'clock at night. Um, today, Haji Abdul Qadir, the vice president of Afghanistan, was assassinated. And uh, he was uh, Abdul Haq's brother. And Abdul Haq was my, my dad's best friend. Um, we were actually taken to see me and my dad. My dad took me with him. He was taken to go see the body. 
Dad put him in a coffin and everything, and it was a, I don't know what you call the room. I mean, it was like the frozen, I mean, kind of like the cold room where they keep buddies, I guess. And to be honest with you, um, I've never really seen a dead body like that. And uh, my dad, I mean, this is the first time I realized how going through a war must change you because he totally just jumped at the body, I mean, as if he was alive, and he just grabbed the towel that was on him, and you could see his almost like scratched his face or scratch marks on his face. My dad actually touched his face and was like, oh, I see there's been wounded here and here. I mean, totally cool. And uh, my dad asked if he was shot in the face. And they're like, no, he wasn't shot in the face. He was shot in the heart. And my dad was like, okay. He just casually unwrapped the towel a little more. And then there was a bullet wound there. My dad touched that too. And he was like, oh, okay. And uh, he said a little prayer and we left the room. It was it was happening way too quick to sink in. I think I'll age about five years in these three months. So I was up pretty late this morning, 7.30, o'clock. I don't know, I had a hard time sleeping last night again. Knowing. You know, my dad could be assassinated just like Haji Qadir. I mean, there, our driver Sator, somebody had come, I think he was sent from the opposition. He started asking my, our driver questions like, so how many people are with them at night sleeping? As me and my, me and my dad, you guys have any Kalashnikovs, AKs, guns? I don't know, a lot of times when he's just like driving in the car. It, like the whole like scene plays out in my mind, like some guys jumping out and shooting at at my dad. Coming up, what happens when your father becomes the official government spokesperson for a country that is barely holding together? Hyder's first person account continues in a minute from Chicago Public Radio and Public Radio International. When our program continues. This American Life from Ira Glass. If you're just tuning in, today we're devoting our show to the story of a teenager who was raised in Northern California who got a chance to live in the country his parents came from, the country he considers his real home, Afghanistan. Haider Akbar took a tape recorder to make an audio diary of his time in Kabul. His father had moved back to Afghanistan a few months before him, back when the Taliban fell, to work in the new Afghan government. Up until this point in our story, his father was officially the governor of Kunar province, 
But then, the day the vice president was assassinated, July 5th, Haider's father got a new job. He became the official spokesman for the entire Afghan government. Haider became his unofficial assistant. If there had ever been a chance that Haider would put his father into his audio diaries, that chance kind of vanished uh, with the new job. After the new job, anything his father would say to him about Afghanistan would be essentially the government's official line on it. Imagine Jenna Bush trying to interview her dad about, say, the politics of the Senate. And you can see how delicate the whole thing would be. Haider's diaries continue with his father, Saeed Fazl Akbar, in his new job as government spokesman. Okay, we're heading off to work, to the palace. Dada Satwa? It's nine o'clock. Going down the stairs, leaving the hotel. Okay, we're heading off to the car. People stopping my dad on the way. This is basically how every morning of ours starts. In the morning, my dad usually just goes with the, goes to meet up with Karzai and see what's going on. Gives me the phone to take messages, etc., stuff like that. That's what I basically do is um, help my dad out. Interesting parts are usually when there's something happened, like the president of Iran is coming. They started to play the, the national anthem of Iran and uh, sounded really out of tune. Twenty-three years of war. If you think about it, I mean, you, it, wow, it's a bad thing. But when you actually go see it, I mean, it really hits you. It's only been like six, seven months. I mean, you can still almost be proud of them that in that little time they've achieved this much at least. And just even seeing that they have the heart to go on with the band makes you proud. <laughs> Standing outside in the balcony, I see our car parked. My driver's here. Me and my driver are gonna go to Jalalabad today. In Jalalabad, we started walking to this place. My driver knows, he friend he knows, and we're staying at his house. I've got to talk to him a little bit, and he's really an interesting character. And uh, I can't begin to tell his story. England is all to England. Ticket are summer was the England airport. He's managed to be arrested in the Africa. He's been arrested in Singapore, and he's been arrested in Malaysia. You might ask what he was arrested for. Uh, he's been trying to come to America <laughs> or London. He's trying to get to the West. He was actually in Rwanda before he was going to go to London and uh, 9-11 happened and uh, this guy was in jail for four months in Rwanda. You know, he's like, I couldn't speak the language or anything and they'd call me Al-Qaeda and they'd say Bin Laden's name and that's the only thing we could understand and whenever when we heard Bin Laden's name, we'd be like, no, no, no. passport, Malaysia, he was as close as getting on the plane. 
The doors were about to close and they came in after him and they were asking him questions about his passport, etc. And they caught him. And he's still, he's, uh, he's going to still try <laughs> smuggle his way to America. I don't know. I, I thought sometimes maybe once I come down here and live here for a little bit, a couple months, do my part to see the country and try to help out a little with my dad and etc. I won't feel so guilty about the situation in Afghanistan. But now I don't know if I'll feel more guilty or less guilty when I come back. When I see firsthand what's going on here and knowing that I can get away from it, but other people can't. I got really sick last night. I think I've thrown up about three times and probably gone to the bathroom about another eight or seven times. There's this kebab, it's called Shami kebab. It's basically made of a kind of like ground beef. People tend to stay away from Shami kebab. Like not even my driver would eat it, you know. And he's totally used to the food here and he doesn't eat that and I eat it like almost on a nightly basis. Man, I really like it. <laughs> and uh, got me last night. I was eating it and then halfway through it I noticed that one of the kebabs was like, the inside was totally red. And I was like, oh well screw it, I've already ate half of it now. <laughs> I I think I purposely don't, I'm not careful, you know, I drink tap water, sink water, unbottled water, you know. I guess it's sort of trying to adapt. Just like I didn't take any vaccination shots, etc. before I got here. I think I'm paying the price for it now too because I get sick almost every week. I have grown up in the States most of my life. And uh, a lot of times I almost feel like I'm in denial of it. Or I don't want to accept it. That um. I am a little bit American, not a little bit, a lot American. Another thing that has to be noted is the, I don't know, it's just the total lack of the whole female species. <laughs> I could go like a week without seeing a lady's face. Like at a hundred women, like 95 still wear burkas. Cobble market, speed bustling, equivalent of like what would be like Times Square. There's four ladies in burkas to the right. And the rest are all men. Like literally. Here I'll start counting and I'll look for a woman's face and I'll sort of tell you how long it takes me. Burka, 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 man. Burka, burka. Still no woman. Since I've been here, I think it's been like a month and a half or two months. I don't think, I don't think I've talked to a girl or to a woman or to a lady about anything for like more than 10 seconds. I'm like surrounded by men at home. I don't even have, at the hotel room, in the office. When we go, everywhere we go, it's just men, 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 men. And it's really weird. And it has had an effect on me. You know, like, when women are around you, I don't know, you're, you're more uh, civilized. <laughs> they hold you back a little. 
but you know here you know especially being so like how I used to look at violence or like killing it's it's almost become normal to me now it's really weird Okay, I'm in my room. I mean, not in my room, in the balcony. And it's about 2.30 in the afternoon. And I got some weapons in front of me. <laughs> Here's a Makarov pistol. It's a brand new pistol. We got this as part of our security. But next to me is the infamous Kalashnikov. I just like this noise a lot. Let me take this apart. Oh, first you take the top off. And let me take this out, the bullets. Um, like my uncle has a rift with his own family. Like I think it's his nephew, I'm not sure, but it's something like that. His younger brother actually killed Sartor, my driver's first cousin. And they have like no shame, you know. They come to the room, like he came in, he greeted us, he shook hands, he shook hands with my driver, the younger brother, just the younger brother, he had come. Totally normal, nonchalant, and and he left the room, and when he left the room, Sartor told me, he's like, you know, that guy killed my first cousin, I was like, what? Okay, these are the bullets. I have one bullet in my hand, and it's... Hitting the mic with it, it's really sharp. The first time, Sartor, when he told me that story about the, him killing his cousin, and I was, and I, it was a big deal. But I, had, I pretended like it was something normal, you know, and you know, st more stories and more stories. And now, when somebody tells me uh, that guy needs to be killed, I'm like, mm, okay, you should, they should probably kill him. <laughs> I'm not like, hmm, killing bad or something. You know, they're just being in this, just for a month and a half being here and going through so many changes, it's really weird. I can, can only imagine what it would be like if I lived here for like a year. <laughs> it's, I'd say it's about 3.30 in the afternoon. We were in a room and I was just, <coughs> I was listening to you two, had my head down, trying to go to sleep. And uh, the, the bed shook and I heard a loud boom. I came outside real quick and I noticed the whole smoke coming out behind the Ministry of Communications, which is the building right in front of us. So, another bomb explosion in Kabul, just one of a bunch recently. Okay, hello. I just went to find out what the explosion was all about, and uh, apparently it's a lot more serious than I thought. <clears throat> I started heading out, and I ran into someone I know, and he said, he was just coming from there, and he's like, don't go there. You don't want to go there, trust me. You don't want to see it. It's happened in the middle of a really crowded marketplace. Probably the most crowded place in Kabul at this time. And... Uh, I saw some of the ambulances that were coming back. I think they already took the first injuries. My my driver pointed out to me, he's like, there, look over there. And there was, there was actually blood all over the ambulance. 
the headlights in the front of the car. You can see the car from here and outside of my building actually. Oh, there's some peacekeepers coming along and I see some more. So, I don't know, we'll probably listen to the news soon. Hello? Okay, you can hear the BBC in the background. This is reported, and it was pretty quick actually. It was probably about five minutes later, the BBC just reported breaking news. An explosion in the center of Kabul, and they say interior minister spokesman actually said it could be in, in, in Kabul Hotel, which is where we're staying. So I know once my mom, if my mom was watching the news right now, she'd be freaking out. But it's not in Kabul Hotel, because we are in Kabul Hotel. Oh, there's more. More peacekeeping troops. But you can hear the chatter in the background, and everybody's around the TV. So an explosion in central Kabul. Some reports say at least 22 are dead. So we're here. Right where the wreckage is. I'm staying in front of the wreckage. It's a closed off area, but my dad got through saying his car's at spokesman. He needs to check out what's going on. Um, Sorry about this. That's a French reporter. He knows my dad. He recognized him. Start talking to him. I hope it is the first and the last. I hope really deep in my heart. I hope so. I'm standing in front of the car that blew up. It's completely destroyed. I just... You could hear me hitting the metal. I think this place should be sealed off better. Everything is evidence all around me. It's being tampered with. It's being moved around. In front of me there's a building, it's about four stories high, glass broken completely, all around. You can hear the glass is being piled up. There's all these uh, tainted red water, you can tell they've been trying to wash away the blood. Okay, we're gonna go. Okay, I'm, I'm at the... I'll be right back. Let me close the door. Okay, well, so far as the bombing earlier in the day, now my other uncle, who works in the foreign ministry, just got a call that there's been an assassination attempt on Karzai. <laughs> Karzai had gone to Kandahar for his brother's wedding. And my dad was going to go with him too, but he stayed for me. So... It's kind of nerve-wracking nerve because the guy was actually crying and saying, if you want to come, go ahead if you don't. But you don't know yet if it... I, mean, I think it's a pretty good chance Karzai has been killed. And if Karzai is gone now, it'll be totally the end of it because I can't see anybody replacing Karzai. Well, our correspondent, at least, is said, was traveling with President Karzai when that assassination attempt was made. She sent this exclusive eyewitness report. The president was back in Kandahar for a family wedding. He waved from his car. Then the man who to kill him made his move. American bodyguards rained rapid fire from the car behind. They hit their mark. And the president was quickly swept away. Lise Doucette, BBC News. My dad is talking to my mom. 
on the phone. I just spoke to her too, so. My mom was like, please come home. I've been getting a lot of calls from news agencies that want to comment out of my dad. And my dad can't because he just doesn't have enough information about what's going on. And it's very frustrating because I'm screening the calls. And they just won't take no for an answer. There's just like two satellite phones Karzai has. He called both of them. Both of them are off the hook. They're not working. And that's that. September 5th, 2002. A black day for Afghanistan. Today, it's the day after the assassination. And uh, I'm going down the stairs. I'm in front of my dad's office. I just got out of there. Karzai's in a meeting with them, and after that will be the press conference. He's holding a press conference. He told my dad to hold a press conference. Okay, I'm entering the palace. Okay, that's Lisa said the BBC. She was actually with President Kandahar yesterday, and she's, I think, going to do another report from here. Okay, the gate's open. Here's the president. Huge crowd. Liz, I saw your footage this, this morning. It's your footage, sir. My footage, you're filming. <laughs> I'm literally the first person standing here. Right next to cars. I'm about five feet away from him. Now seems that it's extremely dangerous for you to move out of Kabul among your people. It's dangerous. Liz, come on. I've been through this before. I've been hit three times when we were fighting the Soviets. Did that stop us from fighting the Soviets? My father was assassinated in Quetta by the Taliban and terrorists. Did, they, did that stop you from fighting against them? I was almost killed in, in Oregon. Did that stop you from fighting? I would not stop. I'll continue. I'm more concerned about the loss of life yesterday in Kabul than about the assassination attempt against me. Every time after I hear Karzai speak in an interview or a press conference, get hope one I'm like it's gonna happen it's gonna make it but look at him talk there's no way it's not gonna make it but then I see what's going on and then I'm like okay I just woke up um, I've gotten sick again and I have stomach pains diarrhea I just feel out of it uh, I sometimes I sleep uh, Outside, there's a bed in the balcony, and I usually have to cover myself in a blanket from head to toe. You can hear the birds chirping in the background. It's almost trying to fool you in a sense, the birds chirping, because it's such a peaceful sound, you know. I don't know, when I hear birds chirping, I get a sense of, you know, that rise and shine, good morning. <laughs> Sunny day outside. It's nothing like that. I hate to be like the grumpy pessimist, but pretty sure another bomb's gonna go off. It's not stable. I, I mean, in the last two weeks, there's probably been about a, over a dozen explosions. A lot of little ones so far. And I know they've been hushed up. 
And you know, it's creating this sense of tension in the air. They're starting to realize, hey, they really don't have a control <laughs> as much as they like to pretend they do. You know, I was a lot more optimistic and hopeful about the future of Afghanistan before I came. Now it's like I'll be happy if it uh, doesn't burst into civil war again for five years. Birds chirping. Rising sun shine. Uh, stomachs cramping up. Hmm. I really honestly feel that Afghanistan would not have the problems it's having right now if Abdul Haq was alive. It's almost like, you know, a person walking and, you know, cars that was one leg and Abdul Haq could have been the other leg. You know, one leg's cut off now. Karzai's trying his best to hobble along, but he can't because one half is missing. He's definitely somebody I look up to, somebody I'd like to follow. I mean, he he did the you know the kalima, which is you know professing your your faith. You know the there's no god but Allah, and then Muhammad is the messenger of Allah. And you know the when you're newborn, the person says whispers that in your ear. You know to sort of make you officially Muslim. It's almost like you know how Catholics get baptized. The, my my dad my my family picked Abdul Haq to do it. He was he was chuckling while he was doing it in my ear too because he couldn't believe it that you know they were asking him to do it because usually you do you ask an older person to do it like a almost religious elder to do it. And, but they they wanted to Abdul Haq to do it because they were like we want him to follow in your footsteps. So even from the beginning, I've always sort of looked up to him. I, I told my dad the last thing I wanted to do before I left Afghanistan was to visit Abdul Haq's grave. Okay, I'm going up the road to Abdul Haq's grave. Okay, road ends here. Now we're walking. Me and my driver, we're gonna walk the rest of the way. Here, a little low wind blowing. I'm covered in dust. It was a terrible journey getting here. We're walking around trying to find it. No, it's not here. Probably asked somebody. Uh, here we go, we found some guy walking. Okay, it is the graveyard. Okay, here we are. I'm sitting here next to a bunch of rocks piled up. There's not even a board or anything that says Abdul Haq. I mean, we, 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 we walked right past it right a second ago when I was like, me and my driver both were like, no, this is not it. And we kept going forward. It's a quiet place, you don't hear much. 
It's the middle of nowhere. Mountains all around me. Um, I'm sitting down on the gravel. I'm sitting down on the dirt. Can't believe I'm sitting down next to his body. I don't know how to explain it. Just like the whole legend behind him, Jaha the hero, and freedom fighter, and visiting Reagan and Margaret Thatcher, and then all the media that was around him. And now he's in just like this little fucking cemetery. Not even a sign that fucking says Abdul Haq. Hello, hello. Okay, today is uh, September the 11th, 2002. It's actually my last night in Peshawar. Um, I'm, I'm at a relative's house. I spent, I'm spending the night here. And you can hear the food cooking here in the kitchen. I'm really excited about coming home. And anyway, I'm gonna, uh, I should probably go to the other rooms. I think uh, some September 11th anniversary is going on. I think it's kind of ironic that I am coming back on the night, the day of September 11th. Oh, here's Afghanistan. In a statement read at the ceremony, Afghan President Hamid Karzai said the Al-Qaeda terrorists behind the September 11th attacks had also wreaked havoc on his country. At times, I almost wish that I hadn't come. It was almost better when I was away from it all, and this was still, you know, something I looked up to. And now I think about it, and I'm like, why? Why bother with them here? Maybe I should just go back to the States, study business, start working with my brother, be a loan officer, go and open up my brokerage, just to live a comfortable life. But I don't think I could live comfortably like that. I'd always be thinking about what's going on in Afghanistan, what I could do to help. Haider Akbar is now a freshman at Diablo Valley College in California. He's planning on returning to Afghanistan at his next school break. Susan Burton is the one who gave him a tape recorder and produced this story for our program. Funding for our radio stories comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Wendy Dore produced today's show with Nancy Updike, Alex Bloomberg, Diane Cook, Dave Kestenbaum, and Starley Kine. Production now from Todd Bachman and Jay Golombiski. Special thanks today to Haider's mother, father, and brother, Nadira Akbar, Saeed Fazal Akbar, and Omar Akbar. This American Life is distributed by Public Radio International, WBEZ Management Oversight by Tori Malatia. We let him come to the studio and watch the broadcast of our show recently. It's like the equivalent, I think, of like the Lollapalooza or something, going backstage and getting to meet all these like rock stars. I'm Eric Glass, back next week with more stories of This American Life. PRI, Public Radio International.